0: Hello, and welcome to the KidneyCast. I'm Laura Morris.
1: And I'm Ari Deckard.
0: This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome, his three kidney transplants, and all his other health and medical stories. Last week, we took some time to talk about some of the politics and recent news about organ and kidney donation. Yeah. Transpl- transplant politics. Right. For the past few episodes, we've been, instead of chronologically continuing to go through your story, since we pretty much caught up We've been taking these isolated individual issues and looking at them one by one. Right. And one of the things we've had since the very beginning when we were planning on doing individual episodes, we thought we'll just intersperse these at different times, was we knew we had to talk about the the money, the financial yeah. aspects of chronic illness and medical issues. Yeah. And. We kept deciding, I don't really want to talk about that this time. Can we talk about something else?
1: Yeah, for real.
0: Talking about the money stuff is so embarrassing and so difficult. Don't you just maybe have one more story about your testicles we could tell instead? (laughs) That'd be so much easier.
1: It would be so much easier. But alas, I think we have run the course on testicle stories. Um, Yeah, this is a can we've really, really kicked down the road a lot. And... You know, it's it's uncomfortable and a little bit embarrassing and I feel like it shouldn't be either, either of those things, but it is.
0: The things that you shouldn't talk about in polite conversation, right? Politics, money, religion, your sex life. Right. And having hit <laughs> all the other things, I think now we finally have Finally to die. we
1: get down to this one. Yeah.
0: And since like you said we keep kicking this can down the road, it has acquired a new context and a different relevance than it maybe had when we first started recording the podcast. It really has because we started recording this podcast back last summer in 2016, and between then and now when we're recording this, there was an election.
1: There sure was.
0: And there's always a little bit of lead time between when we record a podcast and when I finish post-production and put it up Mm -hmm. live in the feed. So more crazy things could happen after we record this.
1: Yeah, I hope not.
0: But the most current news that we know of is that the Republican Congress, as they promised, as they have always promised for every election since the ACA was put into effect, is acting to dismantle the Affordable Health Care Act. Yes. Also known as Obamacare. Right. They are working the budgetary process to lay the groundwork for that.
1: Yeah. And this will come in probably a little bit later on in the episode, but that is relevant.
0: Right. And this is an issue very relevant to our lives and to to Alport syndrome, to kidney disease. Mm -hmm. But I thought, who wants to hear another political tirade after all these
1: months. (laughs) Not me.
0: Do people just want to tune into the to the kidney cast to have us rant and rave about (laughs) politics? You know, what if we what if we make it fun instead? Mm -hmm. And I thought the best way to make this fun would be to give you another quiz.
1: Oh, perfect.
0: So are you ready? Sure. Okay. Question one. Okay. Is Alport syndrome or in-stage renal disease the kind of pre-existing condition that prior to the Affordable <laughs> Health Care Act, an insurance company might kick you off your insurance for.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely, 100% bad news would do. Correct. Yeah, it's very clearly pre-existing, <laughs> being genetic and all, um, yeah, and it's expensive.
0: Speaking of expensive, oh. question two. <laughs> okay. How much according to the data I was able to find online? Okay. How much would a person pay on average for a year of dialysis?
1: Wow, um a lot. You need more specificity. Um let's see. Uh lots of variables. I'm just going to kind of guess a little bit. Um let's say it's about $200 for a treatment. That seems like it might be low, I don't know, but $200 a treatment in center There's three generally per week, so that's $600 a week, Uh, already a lot of money, (laughs) and then um, there's 52 weeks in a year, so that's a little bit more than $30,000 a year.
0: So according to the numbers I found online, and there's a range, the average is between $72,000 and $85,000 a year for dialysis. Oh my
1: goodness. That is well more than most people in this country make in a year gross or not gross like that's a lot of money
0: okay so you got you you were a little low okay but i'll give you a bonus question oh thanks i think, I think you're gonna do thanks. well i
1: appreciate that
0: that's pretty expensive uh-huh what would happen if you have end-stage renal disease and don't do dialysis
1: oh you just die slowly and painfully like <laughs> um that is correct yeah don't recommend that <laughs>
0: You get the bonus point.
1: Oh, good, for slow, painful death. <laughs> Yay.
0: Okay, but let's say you're not on dialysis. You're lucky enough to get a transplant.
1: Yay, okay, good.
0: How much do the medications cost in a year to sustain your transplant?
1: Oh, um, that's still a lot of money, but those meds are way cheaper than dialysis. Um, so you said dialysis averages between 72 and 85. <sighs> I'm going to say it's about half that. Let's say it's about 40K a year for meds.
0: Okay, that's a little high. Oh, okay. And this is one where it's extremely variable. Sure. People have really different medications and different amounts. Yeah. But the numbers I was able to find say it's between $17,000 and $25,000 a year for the medications.
1: Yeah, so okay, that's significantly cheaper, but that's still a great deal of money. That's approaching like. I might be thinking about old statistics, but seventeen thousand, like that's right around the poverty line, which means that like there's plenty of people on dialysis who make less th- or not well, yeah, on dialysis or have a transplant who make less money in a year to pay for everything. Than then it their, would cost
0: to keep them alive.
1: Right. Than just their meds would cost.
0: Speaking of people who are too poor to keep <laughs> themselves alive.
1: Okay. This just gets more and more fun.
0: If you are very poor and have kidney disease, yeah, and need dialysis and transplants, mm-hmm. you may be able to get Medicaid. Yay. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Right. How long will Medicaid continue to pay for your transplant drugs?
1: Oh, this is one of those depressing things I found out at some point. It's um, It should be for the life of the kidney, but I think it's three years.
0: That is correct. Ugh. As a bonus, even if the kidney's doing really well?
1: Oh, yeah. Doesn't matter. Three years. That's good enough.
0: And this is one that infuriates me. Yeah. And I'm going to drop the quiz. (laughs) Okay. It is heartbreaking to think about people who have a kidney transplant that is working, that's keeping them alive, that's probably enabling them to live a life and have a job and be a part of society. Right. That would lose their transplant because Medicaid said, that's enough for you. Right. It's it's heart-wrenching for the organ recipient and their family and i would say that it's incredibly disrespectful to the gift that the organ donor gave yeah. to to waste it like that and to let it fail when it could have succeeded
1: yeah i i fully endorse your position <laughs> um i i believe that the main idea behind that 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 limit is that a lot of these laws are kind of based on the idea that somebody who gets a transplant or needs this just happens to be probably a man and probably between, let's say, 30 and 40 um or 40 and 50 and has no other problems whatsoever. It's just they're going along, do-do-do-do-do, oh, no, I need a kidney transplant. Nothing else is wrong. Hey, yay, I got a kidney transplant. Now I can go back to work where my employer will give me insurance. And if that works, great. But the fact is that, You know, it's really rare for somebody who needs a transplant to have that be the only thing that's going on with them. It's also prior to um, the ACA, it was not always possible that your employer would give you insurance or affordable insurance through your employer.
0: Or that the fact that you had a kidney transplant wouldn't just be the kind of pre-existing condition that would bar you from getting coverage.
1: Right. There's a lot of sort of hand-wavy assumptions behind this three-year thing. And that's me sort of guessing that that's what's going on behind the the three-year limit, and it's me giving people a lot of credit, assuming that, well, it's three years to give you a chance to really get your health in order so you can go get a job or have a job again that would then provide you with insurance. I'm not certain that everybody who agreed to this three-year limit was thinking about that. It could have just been like, well, it gets really expensive. Uh, so three years is good, right? And it's it seems really, really heartless when we start kind of laying things out like that.
0: So I think we're going to dive into talking. We've, we've stalled long enough. We'll talk <laughs> right. about money. I think that we're going to skip past one big chunk of your life, or at least just look by it quickly as we rush on by. Okay. And that's your childhood. Yeah. Because I don't think that we're competent or you're competent to remember all the the financial details of how your disease impacted your family's finances when you were a kid.
1: And right.
0: while we're both very uncomfortable discussing our own money stuff on a podcast, we did not talk to your family ahead of time about <laughs> <laughs> talking about theirs.
1: Yeah, it, it's also the kind of thing where, you know, my parents weren't going to say to me as a six-year-old, boy, you sure are expensive, um, or as a 15-year-old even. I, I think that My family was kind of lucky in that for most of my childhood, they were both government employees as teachers, which meant they had group health insurance, which covered their dependents, so I had double coverage. I think it's possible, but I don't know that they paid higher premiums because I was a sickie (laughs) with all the 24-hour urines and stuff, but I, I don't know. That, of course, ignores the whole hearing aid thing, which happened when I was eight. Um, I lived with them for a lot longer after that, and hearing aids are super expensive, not paid for by insurance, and um, they actually bought a whole separate insurance policy to insure the hearing aids as like expensive devices that we owned, which was good because, as I believe I've talked about before, I was the kind of kid who sometimes thought, hey, what if I just jumped in the pool right now, and oh no, my hearing just went crackle, 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 dead. Um. But that's, you know, that's an extra expense. You know, there's also sort of more minor expenses like uh, extra gas and um, sometimes taking off work to um, get me to and from doctor's appointments or hospital stays or various things that I had. So it was more expensive, but it was not as much more as expensive as it really could have been. In a certain way, I think we were somewhat lucky financially. <laughs>
0: So we're really going to start getting into the details here, starting with when you and I moved in together in Seattle. Cool. So we moved into our crappy student apartment in yes. the university district. The walls were basically made of particle board.
1: Sure. Yeah. Sounds right.
0: So the first question I'm going to ask is, you were in your late 20s. I was. How did you get health insurance <laughs> <laughs> since you were also unemployed?
1: Uh, yeah, that was hard. I was both over eighteen and over twenty-five, which are important milestones in insurance coverage for dependents. You know, now, at least right now, uh, <laughs> the uh, the ACA has a provision that dependents or children of parents with insurance can remain on their insurance until they're twenty-five. That um, I was over both of those ages, and so we had to get really, really extra special permission as part of a special category called um, adult child with a disability or something similar. Um, That was a really rough process. It was really hard to get accepted and approved, um, even though I'm obviously the kind of person that was supposed to be covered by that thing. They made it really, really tough to get. I had to get letters from multiple doctors, and sometimes the first letter wasn't enough, so they needed a second letter from the same doctor that basically said the same thing. There was a lot of runaround involved with that, and it was extremely stressful just getting certified the first time. And when we finally did, and they said, great, you can be covered under both of your parents' insurances, as an adult child with a disability, we were like, oh my goodness, thank thank goodness. We're we're so good now. We've got it. We're figured out. I'm covered until I get uh, another transplant or until, you know, maybe I'm married to somebody who has insurance and they can take over.
0: Yeah. Keep dreaming.
1: Keep dreaming. Exactly. <laughs> um, but then the next year after we had done all that stuff, we got a letter saying, hey, as of last month, insurance for Aaron Deckard has been discontinued because he is over 25. And we went, wait, what? And so there were many panicked phone calls, and it was a huge, stressful situation for my mother, uh, who's the person in my family who handles the insurance stuff. And turned out that, no, this was not a do-it-once-and-you're-good kind of thing. This was a you-need-to-recertify-every-year, except maybe you don't, except really you probably do, but we're only going to tell you after we cancel your insurance um
0: right i want to make this very clear they would just cancel and kick you off insurance without telling you and maybe maybe you'd get a letter a month later by the way we did this right which means there were a couple of times you and i would go to the pharmacy to get medications you needed Mm -hmm. and be told okay that'll be eight hundred dollars
1: right and you're not insured. <laughs> wait, what? That um, no. And,
0: and we did not have $800.
1: Right. And so then I would have to make a panicked phone call to my mom, or sometimes I would make the phone call to the insurance, and it basically always turned out to be exactly the same thing. Well, you're over 25. You can't be insured by your parents. And I would say, well, no, but I'm an adult child with a disability. And they're like, oh, well, you have to get recertified for that. And so it would mean another round of frantic... Doctor's visits and next day airing of letters and things like that, in a hope that within, you know, six weeks, they would go, Oh, okay, you can be back on. We'll retroactively pay for that. And retroactive payment is great if you can pay for it in the first place. And we couldn't. So sometimes my parents would drop a whole lot of cash so I had the medication I needed. For a month while we tried to fill in this hole because the insurance company had said, eh, maybe they won't try to recertify this year.
0: Yeah, I think that we should underline this right now because there are going to be a lot of points in this story mm-hmm. where your parents or my parents bail us out. Yeah. And I think we should stay that right up front because we're going to talk a lot about different welfare programs, different um, insurance options for the disabled, and dealing with the bureaucracies there. yes. And we're going to talk about the frustrations. Yeah. I want to make it really clear. We were kind of playing this game with some cheat codes. Yeah. That for a lot of people, they did not, who have to deal with these systems all the time with the same life or death stakes that we had. Yes. You know, being able to call your nice middle class parents and say, please, please, please help us pay for medication. Right. Is not an option that's available to anyone. Yeah. And we got a lot of help.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And that's going to come up a lot during this story. And I just want it to be really clear. Like when we say things about these systems that are horrible and hurt people. Yeah. We are not the worst off in this system.
1: Oh, no, no, no. We had safety nets for our safety nets. You know, there are also a couple of times where a doctor would say, well, here's all the samples I can find. I hope that can hold you over until the insurance kicks back in, Um, you know, Nobody on an individual level, especially, wants anybody to, say, lose a transplant or become very sick and need to be hospitalized or worse. But in a large bureaucracy level, that gets lost very, very quickly and very, very easily. And yeah, it it was almost never a time where we had to say, call my parents or call your parents and say, hey, could you please? It was pretty much always, hey, so this is happening and... One or both of those groups of people would say, "Uh, we'll cover this this time. Don't worry. You know, and we would say, Oh my goodness. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you." Um. So yeah, that's a really, really important thing to acknowledge that we had that resource, just really, really, really fortunately, because lots and lots of people don't.
0: So you were insured through your parents, is the short answer there?
1: Yeah. Right. Exactly.
0: But you were also on dialysis. Mm-hmm. You couldn't work. Right. And we had bills to pay, rent, groceries. Mm -hmm. How were you generating an income?
1: Um, (laughs) Well, mostly I was not. I could not work. So right before we moved to Seattle, I had applied for welfare. um, at At the advice of, I think, a social worker. And the first program that I tried to apply for is called SSDI, which is disability. It's Social Security Disability Income or Disability Insurance. It doesn't matter. But it's for people with disabilities. It's the kind of thing you get if you get disabled on the job or something else. It's not a lot of money, but it's the higher paying option uh, for welfare. And uh, I was denied immediately because of two things. First factor was that I had not worked enough, which is to say almost at all, within the system as a taxpayer paying into the Social Security administration.
0: The assumption that Social Security makes as a program is you pay into it all your life as a worker, and then when you are older or sick, it's time for society to take care of you. Mm -hmm. You paid in, and now we're going to pay in to help you.
1: Right. There's a a time period. And I remember it being not quite a year, but it doesn't really matter. You earn a certain number of credits for the amount of time you work and pay into the system. And for different levels of support, you need to have earned a certain number of credits. And the, the barrier for entry for SSDI is actually not that high, but it was still higher than I had earned. I needed to have worked for three, four, five years, and I definitely had not been able to do that. Because I had been in high school and then I had a transplant when I was 19. So I was not eligible for SSDI because of no work credits. But the other way to get SSDI is if your disability has occurred before you turn 18. So for instance, um, various people with, say, developmental delays, people with um, Down syndrome or other serious issues like that are classified as disabled and they're disabled basically from birth or you know, some other incident had happened when they were six or something, then they can get SSDI. And uh, before they're 18, that will help their family and their parents and guardians support them. And then after that, that will help pay for various programs and other things that they will need. I had had Alport syndrome my entire life. It's genetic. And I made that point (laughs) to several people on the phone and they said, oh, okay, but when was your transplant? And I said, well, you know, it's July 9th, 1996. And how old were you then? Well, I was 19. Oh, see, that's after you're 18, and that's the qualifying event. The other type of qualifying event they could have considered was when I first had dialysis, which was either right after the transplant failed or right before, which was still after I had turned 18. And so it didn't matter. And it was this strange thing where, like, well, I was disabled or on my way to being disabled before I turned 18 but I was trying to be like this normal person but then right after that I had this qualifying event but there was no time when I could have worked and paid into the system it was this terrible catch-22 and I went around and around on the phone with like I said several people and at least one of them said yeah oh that's um you're right that's really bad but you were over 18 when it happened it doesn't matter (laughs) for the system And it was really frustrating and upsetting. And um, in the end, that didn't matter. And so it was suggested that I apply for what's called SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income. And it is a smaller stipend that is intended for people like me in that kind of situation who... People who fell through
0: the regulatory cracks.
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean, lots of people get SSI for lots of different reasons. It's not necessarily a disability. There's lots and lots of ways to qualify for it. It's a much smaller amount of money monthly.
0: Okay. And since we're just talking about things that make us uncomfortable, give me the hard numbers.
1: Okay. Um, When I first started on SSI, I think it was a little bit less than $600 a month. It's a thing that's variable. It's gone up a little bit over time. It's also location-specific because it's administered on the state level. So it's based on standards of living for where you live. Um, And I was in Oregon when I applied for it. And then I was in Seattle when I got most of it. So it transferred very quickly to Seattle. And then we moved to New York. And in New York, it's higher. Because uh, the standard of living or... Cost of living. The cost of living. Yeah, standard of living is a totally different thing. <laughs> standard of living for us was still quite low. Uh, cost of living is much, much higher. But if I remember correctly, it only went up about $150 a month.
0: Right. I think that it tapped out a little over $700.
1: That sounds about right to me. A month, which is really not a lot.
0: So in order to pay our rent and our expenses, we had that money that was coming in. Yes. We had my student loans because I was going to school. Right. Um, during the summer when I was not in school, at one point I worked three jobs at the same time. Yeah. And we also got a lot of help from our both of our families.
1: Yes, we did. And there's more to talk about with SSI. Go right ahead. Well, <laughs> it gets very complicated very quickly. The idea behind any of these programs is that the government, and at least supposedly society, would like you to work They don't want you to just receive money and sit at home, which is very hard because it's a small amount of money anyway, but they want you to work. And so there's a lot of complex formulas that are applied to any income that you receive in addition to SSI. So you go work one shift a week, maybe if that's what you can do at whatever job you can, and then you're supposed to report that income to the Social Security Administration and then they reduce your SSI payments by some amount. It is not the same amount as the actual income. It's less so that you actually get more money from working, Um, but it's some. But this gets tricky really quickly because if you don't make the exact same amount of money every month from this job that you may be doing, then the system quickly gets confused. And start saying, well, maybe it was always the highest amount, or maybe it's the lowest amount. Now you owe us money back, or a thing happened. In my case, where when I was applying to SSI, they asked me about all of the different forms of income that I had, and I was saying, no, I don't have that, no, I don't have that, no, I don't have that. And you know, they were very insistent. You have to tell us about everything, everything, everything. You can't do anything. It could be fraud. you could be denied if you don't tell us about things, because we have access to your bank accounts, because we're the U.S. government. And so she said, is there any other income you've gotten? And it was right after my birthday, and I had gotten like 40 bucks from my grandma in a card. And that was very nice. And I, and I said, well, for my birthday, my grandma sent me 40 bucks. And she kind of laughed. She was like, oh, okay, cool. So, you know, one-time gift. And I said, yeah, of course. Months down the road then, We got a letter saying, hey, your SSI has been adjusted based on your income, which is what happens every time you have income. And I looked at the letter and what they had listed was I was now um, basically registered as having a monthly $40 payment to me. And so my SSI was being reduced by whatever amount they were reducing it by because either the person on the phone had clicked the wrong box or somebody else had done something incorrect and so it wasn't marked as a one time gift which should have been a one time minus it was a regular payment and that meant that i had to make all kinds of calls and say like i don't really have a way to prove that i'm not getting 40 bucks a month from my grandma every month it just it was my birthday i said that on the phone and we we eventually got that cleared up but i didn't get that money back
0: right it took months and months to clear up because everything takes a long time and they don't pay you back
1: no, not usually. Occasionally, but not for that one. At the same time, you know, we were by no means living extravagantly. We were living basically in what we could afford and a little bit beyond that, but that that was mainly because there wasn't any place cheaper to live Um, for you to still be able to go to school. And, you know, we were not, like, eating out or doing anything fancy or going anywhere. <laughs> we were just... Existing and you were going to school, um, and it was still very, very hard with the amount of money that we had.
0: And in addition to them reducing your income if somebody gave you a gift, or a couple times you would work at Bandcamp for a few weeks. Right. And that meant they would reduce your payments for months and months until we could get that straightened out. Right. <laughs> sometimes there would just be an error. Yep. And we'd get a letter saying, You are no longer part of this program, and we would have to reapply again to get you listed.
1: Yeah, it was, it seemed like there would be like maybe two months of this is okay. And then, oh no, you know, I have to go down to the office. I have to spend all day for a week, all day, every day for a week on the phone, trying to get things cleared up because it's always like you're on hold for about an hour before you can finally talk to somebody. It was sometimes its own job, just trying to get $600 a month, uh, which was not enough. So as a for instance, I don't remember what had happened, but an error had occurred. Um, I was still part of SSI, but we had an extremely reduced income. It was down to, I don't know, $100 a month or something for some reason that was wrong. And the wheels of government moved very slowly. I had finally, after several days of phone calls, I think, been told that the best way to handle this was for them to make an appointment for me to go downtown to the social security office and talk to somebody there and they were able to kind of weirdly get me a very quick appointment which is very unusual in my experience since then but so we went down like that same week
0: and we were pretty desperate at that point because we were trying to make rent we had eaten through any kind of buffer we had we had gotten yeah. gotten help from people yeah but Trying to patch things together for two people living in an apartment with two people's worth of expenses with just me, a student, Mm -hmm. covering everything was getting to be impossible.
1: Yeah, and we were looking down at, you know, two, three more weeks before any more money could come in, really. So we met with somebody and explained the situation and... After a long time of talking and investigating, he was able to figure out what the error was and I believe correct it that day, but we also knew we weren't going to get another check for that was with the correction for like three weeks, I I think. And we were sitting there just kind of going, what is happening here? I I remember us both feeling kind of gobsmacked, like, well, we got this figured out, but it's still going to be three weeks. Like, how are we even going to do that? I don't know. And we were thinking, like, I guess we'll... We'll call our parents again. Ugh. And you finally said, like, what are we supposed to do? And he looked kind of embarrassed.
0: Well, I also remember we were sitting in the SSI office or the social security office. Yeah. And it was packed to the gills with people waiting all day
1: yeah, for their appointments.
0: Day. And so I, I think we ended up saying, you know, no, we don't need your pamphlet about the shelter. Right. Which he had. Yeah. Uh, But I I looked at all the other people and I said, so, you know, we're going to go call our parents and ask for more money. But what is supposed to happen to people in this position?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think he had even said, like, are you going to be okay?" Once we had sort of pointed out, like, this is really severely messed up. We need every cent of this just to not get evicted and to eat the (laughs) extremely cheap ramen that we buy. And... He was like, oh, are you are going to be okay? And like you said, he had this, you know, shelter brochure and stuff. And w- you said, well, we're going to call our parents probably, but, you know, what is somebody supposed to do? And he paused for a really long time and he said something like, you know, I don't, I don't know. And it was like, I felt really felt for him in that moment because, you know, it's not his responsibility. He has a limited set of options and rules that he has to follow and at the same time, you know, and I don't know why he got into being a person who works for Social Security, but regardless of all of that, he's there on the front lines of poverty. Like, he sees people every day who are on the edge.
0: Worse off than us, yeah.
1: Way worse off than us sometimes. And yeah, and they're, they're on the edge. And whatever led them to being on this program, which is, like I said, many, many paths there. And, you know, I'm just one of... Most examples where it's not like my fault or I did something really bad and I deserve to be poor or something truly atrocious and gross, like I know some people feel. It's just like things happen and then here you are and you need help and this is what we have for help and it's basically not enough. Or if it's enough, it's so barely enough that if anything else goes wrong, like they make an error and start giving you a hundred bucks instead of 600, you are so. So screwed.
0: Right. And and most people end up in that position from being sick and poor.
1: Right. (laughs) Which are like two things I don't recommend. And so, yeah, like I'm saying, like whatever led him there, and I don't know, and I'm not trying to make judgments or question that. He's on the front lines and seeing that every day. And he's a, a person, a human with compassion. And he has basically nothing he can do except say, well, if you get kicked out, here's like tenant's rights association and a shelter brochure. Like, those are great things. I'm glad they exist. But oh, my goodness, that's not awesome. And, you know, I also want to say, like, that's not his fault. And it's not like it's not even really the fault of the the Social Security Administration. It's just it's, it's a huge huge, complex program. And mistakes are going to happen.
0: But I will say most of these mistakes mm-hmm. come from the same source. Yes. Which is suspicion of poor people and this priority on making sure no person gets one cent more than they deserve. Yeah. You know, this attitude that there's all these people out there trying to game the system. Oh my goodness. Or get more than they're entitled to mm-hmm. is what leads to them constantly trying to kick people off. Yeah. That they will always err in favor of booting you off the system and letting you c- crawl back later and try to g- patch your life back together and reapply and go through all that again. Yeah. Then to risk, ooh, maybe we gave him a couple dollars more. All of the ways in which we dealt with headaches are all come from the same source. Mm-hmm. That, that deep suspicion that some poor person, some welfare queen <laughs> is soaking up more money than they deserve.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a deep distrust that's built into every aspect of the system. Um I, you know, I've lost track of the number of papers I've signed that say I understand this procedure could lead to the following um the following side effects which is always a list that, you know, leads to up to and including death basically. And similarly, I've lost track of the number of forms to for the government that I've signed saying I will not and I pledge not to Use any of this money or these resources in any way to procure drugs. And I understand that if I get any drugs because of this, that I will be like in super duper trouble. And I can't use this money for any other thing that I would be assumed to maybe want to do because I'm poor. Because I need this money, therefore, I must want to do, you know, heinous, terrible, gross things with it. And I need to be told oh, no, 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 you won't get your $600 a month if you do any of these other things. And it's just, it's all there. It's, it's, um, it's just really in your face all the time.
0: Yeah, it's its pretty embarrassing and difficult to go through these systems.
1: Yeah, it's really humiliating. And it's, um, I would say it's humbling, but that's not right. It's If at any point you are not humble, it's kind of like, well, bye. Um, it's just, well <laughs> it's been nice knowing you you no longer longer need our support it it's it's just it's rough
0: and us patching things together with either my student loans or money ironed working and your s s i and occasionally or not so occasionally support from our families, that's how we lived for for years while well, all the- time when I was in school and law school, yeah, and then when you finally got your transplant and got through school, and you got a job that gave you insurance. It did. Kind of, we finally rejoined, I guess, quote-unquote, normal, (laughs) middle-class society again.
1: In a certain way, yeah. The other thing that comes with SSI, or did come with SSI, was that as part of that application, I became eligible for Medicaid. Um, There's two healthcare programs for the government, Medicare, Medicaid. Medicare is better, Medicaid is very minimal and it's the entrance requirements for medicare are extremely similar to the entrance requirements for ssdi there are qualifying events and you have to have enough work credits to qualify for medicare um a few years ago well at that time a few years ago so sometime in the late 80s or mid 90s there had been this big piece of legislation that i heard about from all my nurses and all my social workers oh it's so great automatically if you have a kidney transplant or you go on dialysis you qualify immediately for medicare it's so great everybody told me about it it's so wonderful it's called you just go in and say i have end-stage renal disease and they go oh there's a box for that now check and you get it and i thought cool i'll get medicare except you have to have enough work credits i did not have enough work credits Or they said, oh, but if you've been disabled before you were 18, and I said, well, it's genetic, and they're like, yeah, but when was the qualifying thing? And I have to say, well, birth? No, no, but when did you have the transplant? And I was like, when I was 19. So it was very aggravating. Um, But by qualifying for SSI, I qualified for Medicaid. And Medicaid meant that I had baseline insurance, and it did cover what I needed it to cover. It covered... My medications for dialysis, it covered dialysis. Other certain maybe fancier things it might not have covered.
0: Did it cover um, doing home hemo?
1: It did, which was nice. Um, We were a little worried, but it did cover that, which was really, really great, obviously. So I had those two things, and that was, I mean, an actual lifesaver, obviously, And then I I want to add one, one final thing, which was very interesting. When we moved to New York, I told Social Security, hey, I'm moving to New York, you know? And they said, okay, cool. And so then the Washington Social Security Administration sent a bunch of stuff to the New York Social Security Administration. And then I started getting letters from the New York Social Security Administration who said, okay, we've evaluated you and congratulations, you qualified for SSI. And I was like, wait, I could have not, but I. You know, it was it was this moment of, like, retroactive panic. Like, well, I'm really glad, but I didn't know that was in question. And they said, and as part of that, you also get Medicaid. And because you qualify for SSI under this certain category, meaning you have no other income, here are food stamps. Now, they're not called food stamps anymore, even though everybody does. I think it was called SNAP at the time. Or They call it EBT? EBT is what it was called then. And then it was called SNAP later. And now it's called something even different, I think, now. But... So I had a little card cuz it's not stamps, I had a little card that was food stamps. And those three things kept us going. Medicaid paid for my medications and it paid for my medical treatment. It paid for me to have my fistula revised a couple of times, which was a small medical procedure that was very necessary for me to continue on dialysis. It paid for the medical stuff I needed to happen. And I was really really fortunate that I didn't have anything extra. I just during the time that I had Medicaid before transplant, had dialysis and dialysis-related things, which were covered. And we were able to kind of (laughs) barely make rent and barely pay for groceries using the slightly increased SSI that we got when we moved here, and then groceries especially using our EBT.
0: Right. And what we got was 200 bucks a month for groceries, and that's only food groceries you can't use it for paper towels or right. toilet paper or other or, things.
1: Or cooked food. Right. Which was a weird adjustment anyway moving to New York because your standard place where you might buy groceries probably also has a deli of some kind. Um, so you can't have anything prepared. You also can't buy alcohol with SSI, I don't think. No, you can't. And that's the place where they start saying, like, if you trade EBT for the drugs, boy, are you in trouble because the drugs are so bad, kids. And it it really made me wonder if this was a solution in search of a problem. Like, I I don't know if people do that or did that, but um, they were so adamant about it. There were so many things I had to sign. It said on the card that using this in exchange for, you know— The bad things were just, it was so illegal, you guys. And so, you know, of course I didn't, but I wasn't going to anyway.
0: We depended on all of this to get through. And still, sometimes it wasn't enough. Still, sometimes we just had to rely on the fact that we had family members who could help. Yeah. And not everybody does.
1: No. No, not at all. Um, Yeah, there were times when, you know, I had to go to the Social Security office in Harlem way more often than I ever had to visit an office in Seattle. And um, even if I showed up at the time that it opened with an appointment, there would be a line 50 people long at opening, waiting to get in. Um, There were people who would basically sit there all day just trying to see somebody. You know, it's a vital program (laughs) for every single person who has it. It's not just Whee, a little bit of extra spending cash. It's just not that at all. And there was definitely one summer, for instance, when we would not have eaten if it had not been for our EBT card.
0: That's, yeah, that's absolutely true.
1: Yeah, I don't know anything else to say about that. Just like, you know, we had limited sources of income and it just would have been impossible. And, and so we had to have these programs. And, um, without them, we, we would not have made it.
0: So I guess we're talking about things that people depend on and vital programs. And so this is when I want to start talking about the Affordable Care Act.
1: Okay, great.
0: We talked a lot about, in our 12th episode, about the Alport Syndrome Foundation family meeting that we went to. And a lot of our experiences there with families who had Alport Syndrome. Mm -hmm. And one of the things on one of the days that we were there was people from the Athena study were trying to get people signed up, come get genetic testing, come participate in studies meant to help cure the syndrome or come up with better treatments to delay the onset of end-stage renal disease. Yeah,
1: it's really cool. So
0: really vital research to help people in the exact position that these patients and families were in in the room. Mm -hmm. And a lot of parents in the room expressed pretty grave concerns about the privacy of the study and the security of the study, yes, because they were really afraid if any of this information gets exposed, then I'm on the record as having a genetic illness, mm-hmm. which means my children have it, which means they would have a pre-existing condition. Right. They could be denied insurance.
1: Yeah. There was a lot of, like, I don't want to overstate it, but I felt like sometimes it was a, a barely held panic, at least. In in some people, and I fully understood that. And maybe panic is too strong, and it portrays people as irrational or something. And this was, to me, an extremely rational fear.
0: Right. It's a thing that we talked about later, that you could call people paranoid, Yeah. but every Republican running for Congress, pretty much, in every election since the Affordable Care Act was passed, has said, we need to dismantle this. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's not paranoid to take them at their word. Mm Mm-hmm. And when the stakes are so high, you're talking about parents who are worried about their sick kids. Yes. There needs to be protection for people with pre-existing conditions. Yeah. There needs to be insurance so that people can go see doctors. Yeah. People should not die in this country because they can't afford medical treatment. No. (laughs) People should not die because they delay going to a doctor because it'll be expensive. No. Right? Oh, I've got this weird thing happening, but if it turns out to be nothing, I don't want to pay a thousand bucks to go to the doctor. Right. And then they wait.
1: Right. Maybe if I just sit sit at home for a week, it'll be, get better.
0: And I just, I would like to convey as much as I can to anybody listening to this podcast, the feeling I had in that room with those parents talking, mm-hmm. the feeling I have every time I look at people posting in the Alport Syndrome Foundation support group Yes. about expenses, about their fears. Mm-hmm. The Affordable Care Act is not perfect, no, but it protects a lot of incredibly vulnerable people.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like there's, I have everything and nothing to say about this. On the one hand, everything you said, I wholeheartedly agree with, um, and I, I guess I could leave it there. I think the other thing, and you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm a person who's directly affected by it. And I'm also, though, I'm not a person who's like, I'm not one of those people whose life was saved because of the ACA. Those people absolutely exist. And um, if it goes away without basically a lot of the same things coming back, there's people who are going to die. People who did die, or the kind of people who did die before we had this kind of protection. And I think that the sort of the key thing there is the pre-existing aspect, that People can't be denied for having a pre-existing condition. Prior to that being in place, people like me, even or people like me, had to pay exorbitant amounts of money for private insurance. And it was usually like some sort of non-standard insurance, and you had to really, really work very hard to find somebody that could kind of maybe take you a little bit if you paid twenty times the going rate. And that's terrible. And not to say I don't understand a business's bottom line, but I also feel like losing a genetic lottery should not mean, sorry, you have to be in poverty. Sorry, you have to live every day of your life desperately. Um, And so the ACA, Obamacare, changed that by saying pre-existing condition is not a condition for denial of insurance. That's a big deal. But the only way that works is with a lot of the other provisions in the law. And so it gets me really, really, really aggravated when people say, no, we'll keep that one thing, but the other things are terrible, when that one thing only can exist because of the other things. You can't have the pre-existing condition thing there without also having a mandate, because then there's nobody to pay for it. Each of those pieces is well thought out, well researched, and works together. It's not to say, like you said, that it's perfect. It isn't. I think the thing that is far better is a system like a great number of countries have in our, in our world, where you have a single-payer system, where you go to the doctor and you say, hi, I'm sick, or nice to see you again, I am the sick person you see regularly, and they say, great, and they bill the government. You know, that works. That's simpler, <laughs> and it's um, actually functional. But, right. The
0: ACA is not the best system. It's just less barbaric than what came before.
1: <laughs> right. It, it's it's not just less barbaric. I would argue in many ways far, far better than what we had before. But it's not, you know, hey, a single payer system works. And And the thing that I think also worries me is that it's easy for me to think, well, listen, I work for the government as a teacher. I have this group insurance that's negotiated by a union. All that stuff is usually pretty protected but it doesn't have to be. I have a pre-existing condition. They could easily say, okay, but here's the plan for everybody without pre-existing conditions, and here's the plan for people with. This one costs this much money, and this one costs this much money. And I'm truly terrified about that. I don't know what will happen. And I'm, you know, I'm not alone. My condition at this point as a transplant patient is largely invisible. Yes, I get sick a little bit more often, but you know. I'm walking around okay. I work with a bunch of people, some of whom have health problems, some of whom don't. I know who some of them are, and I don't know who some of them are. You know, I work with people who have autoimmune disorders, and they're basically fine, but sometimes they're not. And they're basically fine because they have health insurance and they get, like, stuff checked regularly. You know, there's all kinds of things like that that could easily just, if they're not being taken care of, be really, really, really problematic. And um, I feel like once you start to dismantle some of these things in the law, that everything can get much, much worse very quickly for a lot of people.
0: And we can only talk directly about your experience and our experience. True. And we are not in the most precarious position. Also true. But we're scared enough, I would say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, also, you know, I work where I work and I'm terrified for my students, even with the ACA, I have plenty of kids, either for them or members of their family, who just stay sick or have an injury for weeks because they can't afford the copay or because some other insurance thing or just because they're not used to having insurance in a certain way. And so they just don't want to use it. They don't want to use it for fear that it might get taken away or that it might become more expensive and they can only afford it at the level it is So it's got to be something really, really, really bad before they go in, as opposed to just, well, I've been limping for three months. You know, I've had this pain, but, you know, is it really that bad? And that's awful. It's really bad. And it it impacts everything.
0: So given that we've talked a lot about this, I don't think that we have time to get into the listener mail part. Um, We have some interesting things to talk about. We'll save it for the next episode. All right but I'm just going to go right into asking you how you're feeling.
1: Um, You know, I'm actually better than I've been in a while. I, I'm still at that place where it's the months and months of winter where I kind of have a cold, but kind of having a cold is better than a lot of things. So pretty good. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I know I usually have a lot more to say, but no, doing pretty good.
0: Well, if you guys have any questions or comments for the KidneyCast, it's KidneyCast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook at uh, Twitter at KidneyCast or Facebook.com slash KidneyCast. All of our episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher or my website, laramorris.com, larramorri dot com. Ari, thank you so much for talking to me this week.
1: Of course. Thank you.
0: And thank you to everybody for listening. Please call your senators and representatives and support the Affordable Health Care Act.
1: Please, please, please.